All right, one more thing uh, to let you know. Next Sunday, during the service, we're going to be having baby dedications. Um, and so if you would like to uh, participate in that, if you have a baby, um, that's the stipulation. Um, but if you would like to participate, participate in that, could you email me um, this week? Let me know. I'll make sure you are uh, a part of it, and uh, we can celebrate that together next Sunday. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses of Matthew 26 today. And this is really the beginning of the fulfillment of all of Jesus' predictions of his death, of the crucifixion. It is the last days and really the last hours of his life on earth. Things are becoming very focused as we get to, verse, or to chapter 26 on his arrest and his crucifixion. And behind the scenes, we'll see that away from the crowds, plans are being made to get rid of Jesus. In chapter 25, we saw Jesus described in glory, speaking of his second coming and what that will be like and the king sitting on the throne. And then we get to chapter 25. Six, and we move to Jesus being shown as the suffering and humiliated servant of God. And so let's stand and read together chapter 26, beginning with verse 1. And just follow along as I read. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the, disciple, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We ask that you'd help us today as we look to your word. Your word in Isaiah says, this is the one on whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And so we ask you to help us in those ways, Lord. Help us to be humble, to be contrite in spirit and to truly tremble at your word. To realize today, to recognize this is the word of God. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, in the text this morning, there are three uh, characters, one of the characters being many, but there are three characters, and they respond to Jesus in contrasting ways. The religious leaders plot to kill Jesus. Judas volunteers to help them. And then there's this woman in the center who answers God's love with her love, who worships him with a sacrificial gift. And so let's work through the text together, beginning with verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now Jesus has said this over and over again throughout his ministry, but the time has come now and he's saying it's imminent, it's happening. In two days the Passover takes place and the Son of Man will be arrested. Jesus predicts his death. And that's important. It's an important point for us, those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who look at the scriptures as truth, because we see from that that Jesus is not a passive victim. Yes, he is absolutely treated unjustly. Yes, he is innocent and yet treated as a criminal. But in the midst of those truths, we know that he predicted it. He said that it was going to happen. He, he prophesied that this would take place. And then in the midst of it, he embraces it and is in absolute control throughout. So Jesus is not a passive victim here. As we move through these next several weeks, and we're going we're gonna to go all the way up through Easter, working through the passion story. But as we do that, we want to remember that Jesus is absolutely in control through all of this. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. Verses 3 through 5 continue. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now these religious leaders had the power to do this at any time. They had the authority, they had the power. They could have at any time taken Jesus and arrested him. That was within their power. But they feared the people. Because they knew the people looked to Jesus. Jesus had many followers, and especially among the Galileans who had come to the feast of unleavened bread. And so a public arrest of Jesus would certainly have provoked them, likely causing a riot. And so the religious leaders could not risk that. But the plan, this plan that's being talked about behind the scenes in verses 3 through 5 to kill Jesus was long-standing. This, this has been going on. This didn't just begin here. We see that from many passages, going all the way back to the beginning of his ministry. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. 
Now that was after he had healed the man with a withered hand. Luke chapter 19, verses 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. In Luke 20, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they have this thing going on. They want to get rid of Jesus, and they've wanted that for years now. But the people, they can't risk stirring up the people. So this really isn't the part of the text today that surprises us. They've been looking for an opportunity for all of the time that Jesus has been ministering and proclaiming the kingdom. Verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now this part of the narrative is, is a bit out of place, just a few days. Matthew puts it here to make a point. There's a point to this story being here in Matthew. John tells us that it actually happened four days prior to this. And Matthew is highlighting the act of her preparing Jesus for his burial. Jesus says that that's what is happening when she does this. John also lets us know something that Matthew doesn't, that this woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who were both at this meal. And the dinner, this meal, is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. So let's just think about the context of this feast that's taking place and those that are present, right? It's, it's happening in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. So we can assume, and, and like 100% assume, that Jesus has healed Simon. Or they wouldn't be gathering there, right? It would be against the law for them to be in his home if he's still a leper. And so here's Simon who has been healed by Jesus, and they're feasting at his house. And not just that, but Lazarus, who was dead, just days before is literally dead and Jesus raised him from the dead and he's there so this is just it has to be a pretty great situation I mean this is a joyful feast that's taking place and while the priests and elders plot to kill Jesus and Judas plans to betray him a devoted woman Mary anoints him with costly perfume. She pours out this alabaster flask of very expensive ointment on his head. John tells us that the perfume has a value of 300 denarii, which would amount to a year's wages. And she just worshipfully pours it out on his head. It's an amazing act it's a sacrificial amazing act of worship it's love it's a reminder to, to us of how worship is often costly 
It goes on in verses 8 and 9. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, as we look at it and we imagine the picture here and, and we realize this is a costly act of worship and we might, we might respond in our hearts with, This is beautiful. The disciples did not, and, and especially Judas, John tells us in John 12, they're indignant at the costly display. They can't even believe that, there would, that this would happen, that she would pour out all of this expensive perfume on Jesus' head, and they grumble instead of joining her in worship. And that statement, why this waste? What a statement. Why this waste? It continues, verses 10 and following, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? A lot of us should memorize that right there. Okay? That's my counseling for you in the midst of this sermon. Not in my notes. I feel like I should say it. Why do you trouble the woman? There you go, okay. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. Jesus says, why trouble her? They're, they're missing the point. The disciples are missing the point of what's happening here and the beauty of what's happening here. That's what Jesus says. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Not only has she not done something wrong in pouring out this ointment, what she has done, Jesus says, is beautiful. Mary's thoughts are on Jesus. She acts out of love the disciples especially judas are not thinking of jesus in this situation jesus says you always have the poor with you but you will not always have me now we want to be careful in how we interpret that statement jesus is in no way devaluing generosity to the poor okay He's in no way devaluing generosity to the poor. Jesus himself was generous to the poor, specifically by healing and feeding them. So he's not devaluing here. But what he's doing is, sur is placing surpassing value on his own sacrifice. Jesus places surpassing value on his sacrifice here. Jesus is saying that there will always be opportunity to care for the poor, and we should. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. But this moment here at this feast is a moment of significance as Mary anoints Jesus for burial. 
is a moment of faith. She's believing what Jesus is saying. She's believing what Jesus has taught. This one who earlier sat eagerly at his feet, feasting on his words, even as her sister was working diligently in the midst, she's feasting on the words of Jesus. And it, and it is a moment of worship as she sacrificially gives to him. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, I want to ask you, will you please let that statement sink in this is jesus the word made flesh truly i say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will also be told in memory of her not jesus didn't say it'll be told in memory of me and my sacrifice and the beauty of the God. It says, in memory of her. Let that sink in. That's a powerful, powerful statement. I would ask, have you told anyone about Mary in your gospel presentation? Now, we're not talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, by the way. We're talking about Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, this worshiper of Jesus. It's an unbelievable statement Jesus makes here about a woman and the gospel. Janine Brown in her commentary on Matthew writes this, and here rests, I love this, and here rests the narrative irony. The disciples who have been privy to Jesus' multiple passion predictions are outdone by a woman outside of that privileged circle who knows exactly how to respond to Jesus. Matthew memorializes her actions in Jesus' final words, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I love it. She knows exactly how to respond to Jesus. In the midst of this feast of great joy where people have been raised from the dead, lepers, a leper has been healed, and this is the act in the midst of all of that, that Jesus says, this will be remembered. It's beautiful, and it's worshipful, and it's amazing. But the text doesn't end there. Verses 14 through 16, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. How terrible. To think that someone so close to Jesus himself, who saw how he lived, saw his miracles, heard his preaching, saw this act of worship, and yet could eventually respond in this way. You think of what's happening in the background. Christ's enemies were looking for an opportunity to arrest him without creating a riot. John eleven fifty seven says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. 
Now, when you consider that, that can't mean when he's teaching, right? Because everyone knew where Jesus was when he was teaching. So they're, they're asking in John 11, if, if anyone knows where he is when the crowds are not around him, let them know so they could arrest him privately. And now Judas makes matters easier for them by volunteering to hand him over secretly without public disturbance. Why? And how is that possible? Why did Judas do such a thing and how could that be? Well, Luke's gospel account tells us because Satan entered him. So Satan obviously is very much at work here. However, it's important to know that Judas is blamed. We're going to see that in Matthew 26, verse 24. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So blame is on Judas. Judas was guilty. He, he didn't resist the devil as, as Peter writes in and encourages us in 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Judas didn't resist the devil. So Judas cannot stand before the judge and claim, as, as many people have in the past, the devil made me do it. No, Judas did as his sin-filled heart led him to do, and Satan was involved in that. So Judas goes to the enemies of Jesus, the chief priests and officers, and conspires with them, comes up with a plan for how he might betray Jesus to them privately. It's such a sad situation. And of course, the religious leaders delighted in his news their hopes have been simplified and they agree to give him money 30 pieces of silver matthew says here that judas asked for this imagine that right there judas is not coerced it's not the other way around where the religious leaders kind of catch him and and they know kind of judas likes money a lot and and so they 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 manipulate with words and kind of convince him hey we'll give you money if you no matthew tells us clearly what will you give me if i deliver him over to you and they paid him 30 pieces of silver he consented he agreed to the price and from that moment he's looking for an opportunity to betray jesus to them in the absence of the crowd now this this last part isn't the happiest of texts, right? But I want us to consider this. Consider Judas. Judas was on the boat with Jesus and the disciples. He thought he was going to die on a boat with Jesus and the disciples because the storm they were in was so great. And he, with the other disciples, woke Jesus up on the boat and cried out to him. And Jesus stood up 
with Judah standing there and spoke to the wind and waves, peace be still, and the wind and waves obeyed his voice. They ceased immediately. Judas witnessed that with his own eyes. He was there. Judas was standing there when Jesus raised the dead, most recently Lazarus. Judas was an eyewitness to Jesus cleansing lepers simply at his command. The unclean were made clean. Judas watched as Jesus mercifully received sinners with joy and love. Judas heard every single time that Jesus offered salvation by grace and spoke so hopefully concerning the kingdom of God. Judas was there for all of that. And yet, Satan entered him and he betrayed the Lord. And so what possible hope do we, who have not been blessed with eyewitness accounts the way that Judas was, what hope do we have? That might be the question you have this morning. Maybe you word it differently, like, do I need to worry about Satan entering me as a Christian? What hope do we have? And I want to offer you a two-word answer. Sovereign love. Your hope is sovereign love. If God is not sovereign and loving and Judas turns away, then I can't see how any of us have hope. But this event of Judas betraying Jesus is a part of God's sovereign plan. Listen to these verses from John's gospel. John chapter 6, starting with verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, those who who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not tell you the twelve? Did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, a couple things to note from that text. First, clearly Jesus knew about Judas, knew what was going to happen as a part of God's sovereign plan of redemption, that even as he chose 12 disciples, not all 12 were chosen unto salvation. Jesus knows this. One was going to betray him, and that betrayal was therefore no surprise to Jesus, no surprise to God the Father. It was a part of his glorious and sovereign plan. Second, how does that affect us? as we consider John 6. Well, the text says the Spirit gives life. The Spirit 
gives life, not the flesh, not you, not anything you've done, not anything you could work for, but the Spirit gives life. In fact, it goes on and Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So if you have come, it is by the power of God. It's by God's power, not your power. It's God's power that saved you and God's power that holds you. It is His grace. Because what Jesus says later in John gives us absolute, resolute hope in this matter with Judas. Here in John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Later in John 10, Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Father and the Son are one, one in essence and purpose. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. It's not that Satan will be conquered. It's that Satan has been conquered. Luke 22, 31 and 32 tells us Jesus speaking to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That is a glorious truth and hope in the midst of concern about whether or not you will fall away like Judas. Does Jesus say, I've prayed for you so that you won't sin? He doesn't say that to Peter. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, he knows Jesus, in speaking to him about praying for him, knows that Peter is going to fail. Knows that he's not going to be sinless in this. Knows exactly what's going to happen. But Jesus will keep him. His faith will not fail in the midst of this sin. Even in denying Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, know this. If God has called you to himself, has shown in your heart and given you the light to know him and believe in him, he will never hand the light switch over to Satan. He will never do that. Satan has lost all authority over you. Jesus conquered him at the cross and when he rose from the dead. Do not fear. Be merry. And worship him sacrificially for all that he has accomplished. It's why it's so good that we remember. It's why we purposefully take the Lord's Supper each and every week. To remember his body broken. To remember his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, for our justification, that before God it is said of us, you are right. You're justified. 
I'm going to pray and Andrew's going to come and, and just play. You'll be dismissed by Rose to come and receive the cracker and the cup. And take it back as Andrew plays. And as you sit there waiting to take it together as a body, remember. Remember what Christ has accomplished. Remember that it is Christ who has called you and saved you. It is Christ who has done every bit of work so that you might have eternal life. Remember and rejoice and worship. And then Andy's going to come and lead through taking it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, you're good, and every single thing you do is good. We're unworthy. And Lord, we praise you. We praise you for your word that reminds us again and again and again of your goodness. And we pray that you'd help us to be like Mary, people who know exactly how to respond to Jesus. And be glorified, we pray through us in Christ's name. Amen.